Welcome to episode 38, Core Conversational Skills in Motivational Interviewing Conversations, Using Your Oars to Help Clients Change, by Robert Scholes, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist and Licensed Professional Clinical Counselor. From Clearly Clinical, Learn, Grow, Shine. Hello, everyone. My name is Robert Schulz, and I want to welcome you to the course entitled Core Conversational Skills in Motivational Interviewing Conversation, Using Your Oars to Help Clients Change. I'm excited to be with you today and, and talk with you uh, about a follow-up course that really builds off of much of the material that we talked about in the Introduction to Motivational Interviewing course here on Clearly Clinical. So if you have not listened to that, I would encourage you to, to go back and do so. Uh, but I think regardless, there's some things that you're going to take away from this course today that are going to be helpful for you in your work with clients struggling with addiction, mental health concerns, any kind of behavioral change. Um, just a quick introduction uh, about me. Uh, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and clinical counselor in the state of California and also a uh, licensed professional counselor in the state of Arizona. Um, I'm also a member of the Motivational Interviewing Network of Trainers, which is an international organization uh, that is devoted to uh, high quality of training and uh, helping uh, people in all sorts of helping professions learn motivational interviewing skills so that they can help uh, produce better outcomes in their clients. Um, I've been practicing as a therapist for over 25 years, uh, working largely with, uh, with individuals struggling with dual diagnosis concerns, um, many clients who at the onset of treatment who aren't necessarily interested in being in treatment, um, but uh, through our work with them, uh, really help them see the value uh, in, in therapy. And, and oftentimes I tell the story of how we got into motivational interviewing, which was uh, really being thrown into working with mandated populations and without a, without a guidebook. And uh, fortunately, having supervisors who encouraged me to learn uh, motivational interviewing, or as I will refer it throughout the rest of this talk, to as MI. And so... That early training followed up by uh, years of more advanced training and coaching have led me to this place today uh, where I'm talking with you about some of the important skills that are part of MI. So we, we talked a little bit uh, just in the first course, the intro to motivational interviewing course about sort of the foundations, the spirit of motivational interviewing and um, just a little bit about, um, you know, the way in which a helper um, would present to a client in, in an MI-type setting. And, and a key takeaway, hopefully, from that talk was uh, the importance of communicating what I referred to as the MI spirit. And that's a very compassionate stance, empathic stance, a stance of um, we are on equal ground with our clients, and uh, one that really looks to develop partnership and collaboration in the room with our clients, which is communicated to our clients in a number of different ways, um, verbally and non-verbally, how we respond to them, um, and especially those clients that are struggling with finding reasons to be here. We also talked a little bit about the uh, when to use MI. And, and while I find myself using MI strategies um, at all stages of treatment with many different kinds of clients, we talked about how important it is if you're trying to pick a place to start is really with those clients that are in the earlier stages of change. And those clients that I, you know, based on Prochaska and DiClemente's model, 
of stages of change, the pre-contemplators and the contemplators, those that are either, it's just not on their radar that there's a problem, or those clients that are really steeped in ambivalence and having equal number of reasons for wanting to change, but also equal number of strong reasons for not wanting to change. So that was the foundation I laid, and we we talked about some specific ways of how to really show that spirit in the room with clients. And, and today, I want to talk a little bit more about some of the very specific conversational skills that um, I teach to helpers um, in, in trainings. And, and then really challenge them to go back and begin to practice. But before I do that, I, I'm going to ask you a, a question about just people in your life. And the question is this, um, and it's actually two two-pronged question. Um, do you have people in your life that you intentionally choose or seek out when you are struggling with a problem? Do you have people that you intentionally seek out? The second part of the question is, do you have people that you intentionally avoid when you are having a problem? Now, for me, that answer, I can, I can quickly come up with a, with a list of people in the list of folks that I do seek out and those that I, I don't seek out. Now, it, it, this is nothing, this isn't a uh, um, statement of, on those individuals' character. However, uh, those people in my list who I seek out um, tend to have some characteristics that lead me to want to talk with them about something more personal. And, and when I look at the characteristics, uh, they're things like they give me space to talk. They don't insert their opinions and their ideas and their values into my, into my dilemma. Uh, they are patient with me. They're willing to um, let me sit and struggle with things. Um, they're, they're also kind of willing to point out like when I'm conflict, you know, you know, having some sort of conflict with my thoughts, and I'm on both sides of the fence on the issue. But probably most important, they they are present with me. Those folks that I don't seek out um, are those that, uh, while they're nice people and they're people I may uh, go and do some things with, uh, but they aren't people I'm going to seek out. They're maybe quick to judge. They minimize the significance of what uh, the problem is. Uh, they may be uh, quick to cut me off um, when I'm trying to find words to, to state what I'm trying to describe to them. Um, in effect, they're not very good listeners. And, and so I, I ask you to think about this because... Um, that is exactly what our clients are evaluating when they come in the room with us. Um, within the first couple of sessions, they are, they are evaluating how effective we are at listening. Now, here's the, here's the funny thing. I think when you would, would, would question or survey helpers, therapists, um, of any type, and you ask them, are you a good listener? The overwhelming majority of those uh, clinicians would tell you, oh, I'm an amazing listener. I, I'm really good at it. And I've been doing this for years. And yet the stories that I oftentimes hear <laughs> from clients, um, and, and in fact, feedback I sometimes even get from my own clients is that we as helpers are not always great at listening. I, I recall a story of a client who, and, and this is becoming up more and more, about um, him telling me that his last clinician, one of the reasons he left the clinician was that the clinician was constantly checking um, his cell phone during sessions. And 
his response, the clinician's explanation for that is that, oh, I'm really busy. I have a client in crisis. Um, and it's really important that I, I can respond to them in case something comes up. All that's valid. All that's maybe true. However, to the client in the room who's, who's paying good money for a service, it's really giving the message that what they have to say is not that important. So that's a very blatant uh, form of, of not listening well. Yet, I think there's more subtle forms of not listening well that probably even the best clinician falls into at certain points in time. And I think there are lots of reasons why we, um, on some sessions with some clients, listen well, and with other ones, we don't. Uh, there's sometimes it's as simple as we haven't had a good night's sleep, or we're not feeling as well, or we have things that are happening outside of, of, of our professional life that are hard to shut off. And, and so in everyday life, things come in. Which, of course, is one of the things I talk about is, you know, what is your practice as a helper for getting in that zone of listening? I have, have come to appreciate the importance of taking a few minutes of doing some mindful mindfulness before I step into a session, knowing that my mind is cluttered with so many things um, in any given day. So all of that said, we're going to talk about <clears throat> these listening skills because here is what we know. The skills we're going to discuss today um, are not just some skills that, you know, we think are nice or we think are, um, you know, good because, you know, they're things that we learn early on in our training. But we know that from the research, and there's a, there is just a growing body of research that shows that if clinicians are utilizing these these skills, these ORs, which I will explain in just a few moments, it tends to lead to higher client engagement, higher, which leads to clients sticking in treatment, which leads to better outcomes. And so these skills, and when we are training professionals and doing more in-depth training, we are actually beginning to really look at their statements, statement by statement, and, and helping them learn how to code what it is they're doing in session. And what we know and what we see from some, some standard, from, from some studies that have, have looked at this, is that those clinicians that are really following and using the skills uh, tend to have clients who are, who are having better outcomes. There are a couple of, uh, as we get into some of the skill building here, there are a couple of, of workbooks I'm going to reference uh, throughout our time today. One is Building Motivational Interviewing Skills by David Rosengren, uh, which is just an, uh, an excellent book to, to use in practicing some of the skills we're going to do today. Um, so I would encourage those of you who are interested in developing the skills to check that workbook out. Another really good one is, is called a toolkit for motivational skills by Fuller and Taylor. And while not specifically um, MI skills, they're motivational enhancement skills and a great workbook for understanding uh, the importance of listening and how it affects motivation. One of the things I, I love about Fuller and Taylor by way of introduction into the oars is they, they really talk about these sort of five levels of listening to, to people. And, and I like, and I'm going to just briefly talk about them as it relates to our interactions with clients. Uh, but they talk about as level one, this sort of limited listening, the preoccupied listener. And, you know, th it's really kind of giving off the, the, the message to the person we're trying to help that, you know, I'm here to just fix this. And we just need to get through this. And, um, 
they really are kind of focused on their own ideas rather than the client's ideas. And, the, and what we see in situations like this, the limited listener is interrupting a lot. They're doing a lot of advice giving, even when the client is pushing back and saying in, in a, a variety of ways, I really don't want your advice. Uh, I want you to listen to me. And, and oftentimes this is, you know, their, their quality of their listening skills is very poor. They're asking lots of close-ended questions or it, it really begins to almost feel more like an interrogation. Okay. And level two listening is, is really this listening for content. And, and, and this is important that we listen for content because it, it does inform um, a lot and it helps us sort of put together the story and a person's background. And, um, you know, this, in this kind of listening, you know, the, the, the listener may be less distracted, um, but they're, they're maybe not listening for the full picture. They may be less focused on some of the nonverbal listening, nonverbal communication that's happening in the room, facial expressions, um, emotions that aren't being named. Um, so better, absolutely, than level one. Um, but level two listening is more, of, and then level three listening is more of that active listening, which, you know, for most helpers, this is something they learned early in their, their even undergraduate, but definitely in their graduate studies, where um, they're really focusing, they're concentrating, they're doing more following. As we talked in uh, lesson one, this is more that Rogerian client-centered listening, um, where they're also commenting on, reflecting on even some of the, the, the body language. And and which really kind of leads into even level level four, which is more of an empathic listening that really kind of not ignoring content, but really trying to be emotionally present in the room. And that not only are you listening with them, but you are really in it with them. And again, I go back to and I ask you to think about those people in your life that you go to. And those that are you really would consider good listeners, my guess is that is what you're describing oftentimes, is that person who genuinely is there with you and is following you and is able to um, really jump into the experience you're having um, and walk alongside there with you. At level five listening is, is a little bit more advanced where, you know, and we'll talk actually a little bit more about this in, in a future course, um, but it's kind of that ability to kind of point out some discrepancy, um, but includes all the other uh, categories of listening as well. So, so I want to move into and, and start to describe uh, the oars. And I, and I love the visual of the or for what we're gonna we're gonna be talking about uh, for the remainder of this podcast, and you know, and if you can imagine an or, and the purpose of an or um, is is to create movement, and and those of you that have um, you know been out there on a canoe or a kayak, um, you know that while the or itself is important, um, it's also important your technique of how you use the oar. So it's not enough just to know to have the oar, but it's actually really important to kind of have a style on how you're going to use it. You know, I remember the first time I, I went canoeing and I was, I was probably in my middle school years and it was um, on, a, on a trip down a local river with a, with a group of family friends and I had never canoed before. And I remember being in the boat and kind of looking around and wondering, okay, so where do I put this thing? Or which direction do I push it? And I remember having to experiment with the different ways to hold the oar and, and to move it. And, and of course, um, the importance as well 
of of knowing that you need to sometimes put the oar on one side of the canoe or kayak and also put it on the other side if you're the only one actually using the oar. At the same time, if you're in the canoe or kayak with someone else uh, and they're also having an oar, the importance of finding getting into a rhythm with that person. So I think those visuals speak to um, how we communicate with our clients and the importance of rhythm, the importance of figuring out um, how how to move with the client. Um, and importantly, I, I do think that as well, that under different conditions, our ability to effectively use our oars changes. And I would ask you to consider a client that you, you can jump in the room and into a conversation with and, and things just flow. And you kind of know how to communicate, things just come easy. But then there are those other clients that it gets difficult. And and I remember the first time, and I was uh, in, a, in a different setting, and it was after a series of pretty significant rains in our area, uh, where um, there were quite a few rough, rapid spots, and, and the current was very strong. And I had never been in that current before, and I didn't quite know how to navigate it. And a few times, I ended up running into the bank of the river um, or getting stuck because I didn't know how to use the oar effectively to, to navigate the canoe. Now, was it because the oar was ineffective? No. Um, it was because I, as the, the one in the boat, didn't quite know how to, to use the oar effectively for that situation. And... I think that's a good metaphor for many of our clients is that what works with one will not work with the other. And so if we're looking for a tried and true strategy or a way of interacting with one client that's going to work for all clients, I think that's, that's probably um, a myth or a misconception that we have to challenge ourselves on. I would also argue that I like that metaphor because um, like I stated before, it's not the oar's fault that I ran into the riverbank. Just like it's not the client's fault that things aren't moving well in the room. We, from an MI perspective especially, operate from the standpoint of when things are not flowing, that we have to change things up. We have to look at what we're doing in order to get a different outcome. And that's a little bit of a, a shift for some clinicians who have grown up in the school of thought that, well, if a client's not making progress or if they're pushing back, well, it's just that defense, those defenses or that resistance from an MI perspective. No, it's about we need to change up how we are interacting and communicating with the client. We have to learn to navigate sort of the stream or the interaction differently. And the skills that we're going to talk about here can be adapted to fit with different kinds of clients. So let me talk with you about the ORS model. And then we're going to go into some more in-depth practice and, and look at each of the skills. So ORS is an acronym for the four really key communication strategies that we try to emphasize in our MI training. So the O stands for open questions. The A stands for affirmations. The R stands for reflective listening. And the S stands for summer rising. The ORS is, is a really skills-based model that's very client-centered, and it's not just about verbal skills, but it is really about the nonverbal responses. And it's critical as we think about how we use these responses or we interpret 
our clients' responses that, number one, we, we are culturally sensitive. Um, we recognize that not all people communicate the same way, um, that um, a certain type of nonverbal or verbal response and um, from one person of, a, of one background may not mean the same thing from a person from a different background. We also need to appreciate the fact that some people are more verbal and can sit and openly talk easier than others, while others have a hard time finding words. Um, much of my work in my career has, has been working with men and boys. And again, I'm not going to draw a, generaliza a generalization because there is a wide range of skills and ability for men and boys in terms of their verbal skills. However, I would, I would argue, and I think the research supports this, is that as a group, many men struggle sometimes with finding words or words or especially emotional language to describe challenges that they're having. Okay, this doesn't mean they don't have they're they're pushing back or they're not wanting to cooperate with me. It just means they don't have the language or they've never been they've never been trained or the that language hasn't been reinforced um in their culture, you know, or in this case, you know, with a lot of men. So the purpose of referring to ors is, is a number of reasons. Number one, it really does provide us with a common language when we're teaching communication skills to helpers. Um, secondly, it really does provide us with a checklist of skills that we do for our ongoing self-assessment. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later, but um, one of the things that when I got into more in-depth training and and actually hired a coach to monitor my sessions and help me code my sessions was was that I really began to be more conscious moment to moment in my sessions with clients about how I was using and when I was using the different types, uh, the different um, components involved in the ORs. The third is it really does provide us with a format to be intentional when you're working with patients and clients. It really does, if you're using these intentionally, and I can say that when I started using these more intentionally, I became more efficient and more effective in the work I did. I began talking um, and being more succinct and more accurate in my observations in my reflections, which led to my clients feeling more understood and talking more, which is ultimately the goal of our sessions is um, less of us, more of them, so that they can begin to use the time and space they have with us to begin to explore and resolve um, the concerns that bring them in. So let me walk through the different pieces of the oars. The first one is that of open-ended questions. And I think when we when I talk about open-ended questions, we also need to talk about closed-ended questions. So open-ended questions are those questions that really do allow more for exploration rather than a really simple yes, no, or some very specific content-laden answer. Okay, so, and we'll talk about what those look like. So, and the, really the purpose of asking open questions is it's really to establish a, a safe environment, um, to build trust. Um, it really, I always like the word curiosity, is they, they really help us get into a client's world and help us to explore and clarify clients' experiences and their thoughts. And if you remember back in our first training, I talked a lot about, you know, one of those core pieces of the MI spirit is that, that the importance of eliciting or evoking um, information from clients, getting their perspectives on things. And that's what these open-ended questions do. And they really do help us gather information. And so, you know, early sometimes in our work with clients, we may find ourselves asking a few more open questions 
but these questions should lead to um, clients elaborating on things. And they oftentimes, um, as you ask, if you ask a good one good open-ended question, it will lead into a pretty long conversation and without you needing to continue to ask a bunch of follow-up questions. So some examples of that, um, you know, I think I oftentimes will ask early in treatment, especially from people who have been in treatment before, questions like, you know, what has worked for you in the past in therapy? And, you know, what hasn't worked well for you? Um, you know, I ask questions about, you know, at the beginning of each session, um, asking them something around the idea of, you know, how can I be helpful to you today? I spent a lot of time working with uh, college students and a lot of our conversations were around things like um, alcohol use. And so a question I would sometimes ask them if they said they were a drinker, I would, I would ask them the question, you know, what do you, what do you do to make sure that you drink in a way that, that leads you to have a good outcome for the night? Or something to the effect of, you know, how do you know that you've kind of reached that limit for yourself on a given night? So they're curious questions. They're not interrogations. Um, we really do try to avoid the use of why questions. Why, not that all why questions are horrible questions, but usually we can replace the why with a how or what question and that lead our clients to feel less defensive. So um, I'm gonna give you some examples of also how you begin to change your closed-ended questions into more open-ended questions. So for example, rather than asking a teen or young adult, um, do you wanna stop skipping school? Um, you would ask a more open-ended question, you know, what else, is affected when you don't attend school. You know, tell me a little bit about some of the reasons why you don't attend school or what leads you to not attend school. Another statement or close-ended question would be something to the effect of, don't you want to be drug-free so your boyfriend is proud of you? More of an open-ended question might be, you know, how does your drug use affect your relationship with your partner. Close-ended example, you know, wouldn't things be better if you stopped running away from your problems? And versus an open-ended approach was, tell me about some things you've worked on in the past. You know, what strategies have you used in the past to get yourself through difficult situations? So as you're listening to this part of the, 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 the podcast here today, one takeaway you might have in this section is become more aware of the kind of questions you ask and really begin to consider the ways in which you begin questions as well as how much information you're getting from the questions you're asking and how relevant the question is to the specific thing you're working on with your client. MI talks a lot about um, the importance of A, limiting questions, that if you're listening well and you're using some of the other strategies we're going to talk about in a minute, you really, you really aren't going to need to ask a lot of questions because questions for many people um, put them on the defense, even a good question, because it then becomes what we talk about in MI is it's the question and answer trap. And it begins to set up a style of communication with your client where they are expecting you to come up with the questions or come up with the, um, the direction of the conversation rather than following the client down the path that they want to go. So it's important to be careful of that. 
So one of the things, another thing you can do, other than being aware of that, is beginning to even just keep track of how many questions are you asking in a particular session. Now, I want to be clear, because sometimes when people have had MI training, they walk out saying, well, questions are bad. Well, that's not true. Questions are not bad. However, they oftentimes can be reduced. And what we know is that clinicians who maintain um, you know, a, a much higher ratio of questions to other types of communication, they, they tend to have better outcomes. And so the, the really key thing is less about how many questions you're asking, but how do they compare to the other types of, the other components of the ORs that we're gonna talk about. And so um, we typically talk about a, a ratio of three to one, um, I'm going to tell you three to one. Um, I, I think the research shows that even higher rates are even better. But if you can do three to one of reflections um, and summaries and um, affirmations uh, to questions, you're going to be in good shape. And you're going to find your clients are going to start talking more, um, especially if those other strategies are really um hitting the mark with your clients. So again, the takeaway is not questions are bad. The takeaway is be thoughtful in your questioning and really start to monitor the number of questions in relationship to the other types of responses you're giving to your client. Let's move on now to the A in the OR, which is the use of affirmations. And when I was going through my coaching or personal coaching for MI, um, and we were starting to code my sessions and to look at my use of or lack of use of the different components of the ORs, this was the area that I really fell short in. And I was shocked. Um, I think one of the things I always thought of myself as was a I was a very positive, um, someone who could really point out strengths. And and not that I didn't do it, but I probably didn't do it as often as I could. And when I began to be more aware of it and to be more of an affirming, more affirming in my responses, my clients noticed. Not that they told me, Robert, you're you're affirming me more, but people like to be affirmed. And again, I'm going to go back to the example of probably some of the people in your life that you go to for your for personal issues affirm you. They see the good in you. They see what you're doing, not just not what, what you're not doing. And they're also able to kind of point out specific things that you're doing and <clears throat> that feel good because they notice um, they don't just tell you, good job. You know, they can, they can help you see or they can see the work you've put into something. So as an example, if I go to a friend and I, you know, maybe I've submitted an article for publication and I got some feedback on it that was, was harsh. And there were a lot of corrections before I could resubmit the article. <laughs> and if I'm sitting with a friend who is it more affirming, they would probably notice, you know what, you put a lot of work into it. It's a first draft. Um, you, the, the critics noted that there, there was a lot of good things you said um, and that now it's just about cleaning it up. That's a much more affirming article, affirming statement about my work than the friend who would say, well, they're just stupid. They don't know what they're doing. Or, you know, um, you know, maybe that isn't, a, it, maybe it's just telling you it's not a great article and maybe you need to reconsider. That's not very affirming. So affirmations simply are really a specific acknowledgement about what a client has already done, a personal strength or an ability. And affirmations take very little time, but they do require you to listen carefully to what a client's telling you. 
and to look for opportunities to acknowledge the positive aspects of a client's life. And so, you know, and with some clients, this is easier than others. You know, for the client who's out there, you know, they're doing their homework, they're taking steps in their treatment, they are making the changes that you've talked about in session, it's easy to come in and do affirmations with them. For the client who's struggling with change, who in fact is getting into more trouble or if they're struggling with an addiction has had a relapse, sometimes it might be harder to see that. But if a client comes in and, and talks about a relapse and how they're struggling, um, it would be easy to kind of focus on the problem or the the misstep rather than focusing on their honesty, their desire to come in and figure this out, their tenacity at, at, at continuing to work at it. So that's the affirming part of it. Um, the purposes of affirmations is, is, is a number of things. One, it really does help to continue um, to strengthen the rapport that you have with your clients. It, it offers and demonstrates a lot of empathy and it really does help you further explore into a client's world. It helps you see and helps your clients see there's other parts of themselves other than they're a relapsing addict. They can begin to see or begin to consider that they do have some strength. They do have some desire to make things different in their life. It really does affirm clients' past decisions, abilities, and healthy behaviors. And I, I liked at a training I went to, I, I loved this statement. Um, and, and you can put the word affirm or reflect in the statement, but what we affirm or reflect, we're going to start to hear more of. So when we have people affirm the things that we do well, we're probably more willing to talk about those things. Or if people can see a different side of us, we may begin to consider that side of us. Um, and in many cases, that's you know, the side of us that's not just the problem, it's the good stuff. It also really does build a client's self-efficacy. And, and that really means that ability that they believe they can be responsible for their own decisions and desires. So, so examples of that, you know, where you're affirming, you, you know, with a client, it's, you know, something even as simple um, as saying, you know, I'm so glad you came in today. Um, it isn't always easy to make that first appointment and take the first step. Um, you know, it's making this statement of, you know, you're really taking care of yourself. Um, this recovery thing you've commented isn't easy, and yet you attended four meetings this week, and now you've come to your session for the third week in a row. So it's affirming specific behavior that you've noticed that is connected to the desired outcome that they have for their life. In the latter one, it would be sobriety. So that they're, you're making connections for them. And as they're hearing that, they're likely to light up and, and feel like you really get them and you see the good in them. So the, the R in the ORs is the reflective listening. And this is, I think, probably the most important part of the OR by far. It will be the thing that um, if you're listening well, you will probably be using reflections the, the majority of the time that you're sitting and talking with the client. However, it is also the most difficult to learn. And again, when I did my own coaching, um, I thought, oh, I'm a really good reflective listener. And in some ways I was. Um, and yet my reflections oftentimes fell a little bit short or they didn't really help to move the conversation along. So in fact, I was doing a reflection, but for the sake of simplicity here, I was doing a lot of simple reflections, reflecting content, reflecting what the client was saying or reflecting things that had been done rather than kind of getting to some more deeper or complex reflections, which we'll talk about. 
Reflections require that you listen very carefully. It's, it, and again, it's not just about the content. It's that, like we talked a little bit earlier about Fuller and Taylor's levels of listening. This is that very empathic listening. This is you're listening to, I always say, you're listening to their body, their mind, and their heart. And we're trying to reflect back um, the full picture. Um, I think a good example is, is it's really kind of holding up the mirror and helping the client begin to see what you're seeing and to let them know they're, they're seen. And again, I go back to like when we're in those situations where we are seen and understood, there is a deep connection or bond that occurs with between the listener and the helper or friend. So think about it in that way. It is really does help promote movement in a client's awareness. As we reflect, as we point things out, um, it really does help movement occur. I would, I would argue it also is the reflections and the importance of reflections is based on a very important tenet of MI. It is trusting that as a client begins to process things, they will be able to begin to find their way forward rather than believing that we need to push them forward or tell them where they need to go. So MI is really based on this idea that people have a genuine desire to make change in their life, to better their lives. And I think for most clients, that statement has been very true for me. And I would ask you to consider that for your own clients. So the purpose of reflective listening is, is, is to, number one, just demonstrate to the client that you get it, that you're trying to understand his or her situation, that you offer the client the opportunity to hear their words, their feelings, their behaviors, and that it gives the client this really powerful in-the-moment experience. And there's different kinds of reflective listening. And I'm going to just talk through a couple of the different types. And I would ask you to consider um, thinking about how often you use these types of reflections. I, I think the more varied we are in the types of responses we do, um, probably the more helpful. Like I said, I think with certain clients, um, certain types of reflections are more helpful. <clears throat> For example, I think when we have a client who's coming in and they're in a very pre-contemplative, not ready to change state, it's really important we stay pretty simple with them and we're doing a lot of reflecting um, just kind of where they're at and mirroring where they're at emotionally and content-wise. Um, that is really important as we as we as they get more comfortable, some of the more complex reflections can help to draw them out, help them consider things differently. So the first one is just a simple reflection. And simple reflections are, it's really just the, the parroting or repleting the client's words. And, and, and that's okay. It, it's not a bad reflection. And in some cases, it just, especially if a client's talking a lot, just you know, even though oftentimes nonverbal cues such as nodding and really making good eye contact and being physically present with a client can do the same thing, but sometimes it's, it's helpful just to note it. Sometimes just a simple reflection too, um, if there's a point of that you're not clear in what they're saying, the simple reflection will allow the opportunity for the client to correct you. So especially if they're maybe using language that isn't real clear or could mean a number of things, the simple reflection, um, you know, even just using a different word may help to clarify. The second kind is more of that is, is and we're getting in now to the more of the complex reflections, is reflecting the emotions, reflecting what the client might be feeling. Now, sometimes the client is telling us what they're feeling, sometimes they're not. And again, a lot of my work with men who struggle with knowing how to name 
feelings or they know how to name things like anger or being pissed off, more secondary emotions, but they have a harder time with the primary emotions, um, is that you, you take a stab at what they're feeling to deepen the conversation. So for that, you know, maybe that angry guy and he's pissed off and he's telling me about, you know, uh, you know, how his wife doesn't understand him and just making him so angry. And, um, you know, I may make a statement, you know, you're feeling misunderstood because she doesn't seem to understand where you're coming from. And that deepens it for the client and, and helps him in that case even find some other language that eventually he may be able to use in communicating with his wife rather than just communicating anger back to her. Another part is just reflecting the behavior of what's happening. So, you know, this is the case where, you know, sometimes you're sitting with a client and they may for a while be looking at you, they're with you, and then all of a sudden their head goes down or they look away, or they start to cry, or they get quiet. And, and we make an observation such as, you know, I noticed you, you've, you got quiet. Um, I noticed you looked away when you started to talk about the difficult things that happened with your dad. Okay, that's more of that reflecting the behavior. And as we do that, and you don't need to ask a question, you could ask a question, but sometimes the reflection will elicit a response and they'll give us something back. Um, the next kind of complex reflection is more of an amplified reflection. And, and we use amplified reflections to um, really appreciate where clients are at, to accentuate maybe a feeling or reaction they're having. Um, so it is somewhat also sometimes of an exaggerated response. So let me give you an example. So sometimes, you know, people I, you know, I talk with, you know, they're coming in, they're really pre-contemplative or early contemplation and about their drinking. And they'll make a statement to me, you know, um, I, I just don't understand, you know, why, you know, my partner is making such a big deal about this. And I may make an amplified reflection back to say something like, um, you don't see anything wrong with your drinking. So I take what they've said to some extent, I exaggerate it a little bit, and oftentimes the response to the amplified reflection is they'll correct me in the direction of um, talking more about change. Now, so they may come back and say, well, I didn't say that it's not never a problem. I actually see that there's some nights where I definitely hit it too hard. Um, I just don't understand why she, I just don't like, you know, my partner nagging me all the time. So the, the amplified reflection is, is helpful. It, it's in, in a sense, it's, it can kind of be a confrontation strategy without having to ask a question or appear confrontational. So it's important, however, these amplified reflections are done with great care and compassion and not loaded with sarcasm because clients will pick up on that pretty quickly and they, they may react negatively to those amplified reflections. The next reflection I'm going to talk about is a double-sided reflection. And this really lends itself well when we're working with clients that are um, in that contemplative, um, ambivalent state where they really do feel or they think two ways about things. And there's a lot you can do with these double-sided reflections. I think this is my favorite type of reflection. But, but it really does allow us to, when a client's talking about, so for instance, they may say something to the effect of, you know, I, I really love, I love smoking weed because, you know, I actually get to sleep at night now, even though when I wake up in the morning, you know, I'm feeling really drowsy and not real motivated to get up for class. The double-sided reflection to that is, um, you know, you, you see and you found that weed helps you with your sleep, um, and yet at the same time, you don't like the fact that the next day you're, you're tired and, and it's affecting your academics, which I, you've told me before is really important to you. 
So that's that double-sided reflection. It reflects both sides of the content. Now, I've intentionally chosen to order that content in that way. Rather than start with sort of the, um, the, the, the ref reflecting the part that would suggest that there's a problem, um, I start with the part sort of in the agreement part where they have acknowledged that the benefits of it, but then I end with sort of the drawbacks because that's intentional from the standpoint of th that they will likely then continue to talk about some of the drawbacks after that. Not always, but we're very intentional in terms of how we reflect different parts of their experience of a behavior, especially when they're in that contemplative state. The last one I'm going to talk about today is really that rolling with resistance type of reflection. And there's a lot of different things like this, but, um, you know, but I think a perfect example is a client who's coming in and saying something like, you know what, this is, I think therapy's stupid. I, I don't see how this is going to help me. The rolling with resistance reflection is something to the effect of, um, you're not sure why you're here. Um, you have a lot of questions about what good could come from this. The client who comes in and just says, um, I don't want to change. Um, I think um, this whole thing is stupid. Simply reflecting back um, something to the effect of you're feeling really misunderstood. You're not feeling heard. And being forced to come here is not your picture of what you think is going to be useful to you. So it's just simply not getting into the argument and helping people move from that high emotional state maybe down to a place where they can talk more rationally about what's happening for them. The last part of the ORs is the summarizing. And summarizing is simply a way for us to pull it all together um, to oftentimes transition into a different phase of the MI process. So moving from where we're engaging and focusing into potentially even um, planning. So it might be something like, you know, so we've talked a lot about your marijuana use. We've talked about the pros and cons of it. You have sort of seen that um, when you're smoking less, you function better. And <clears throat> so what I'm hearing you say today is that you'd like to figure out a plan for how to come up with a, a way to smoke less so that you can get both the benefits of smoking as well as some of the benefits of cutting down on your smoking. So it's a long transition, um, but it sort of takes everything maybe we've talked about in a 15 25-minute period and condenses it down into a couple minutes where we show that we get it. We acknowledge maybe both parts of the ambivalence or both sides of the coin for them, but really specifically pinpoint where we're going to go. And that's that kind of summary where we're trying to bring it together and then create the movement towards something changing. So that covers the different, the four components of the ORs. I, I hope this has been a good introduction of the ORs model and, and strategies and skills for you, as well as just a, a bigger overview of the importance of the listening process in motivational interviewing. Um, as I mentioned to you, for those of you that are really interested in learning more, those two workbooks that I mentioned um, would be great places to begin to practice those things. Additionally, I think some of the best things to do too is, and one of the strategies that I encourage clinicians to do is just write OARS on a sheet of paper and put it on a clipboard. And when you're doing sessions, begin to kind of take note of your responses and, and kind of being aware of how often you're using the different parts of the oars. Thanks so much for listening, and good luck as you begin to practice some of these tools. 
You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.